Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning and welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? as we navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, our guest is attorney Michael T. Vanderveen, who received his law degree in 1988. He continued his study of the law, first at the National Criminal Defense College and second at Temple University, Beasley School of Law, where he earned a Master's of Laws in 1995. In addition to his busy practice, Mr. Vanderveen believes in community involvement And it shows, as he has been involved with the American Diabetes Association, the Philadelphia chapter, served as a children's coach and mentor, worked with numerous charity events, and is currently on Montgomery School's Board of Trustees in Chester Springs. Mr. Vanderveen currently serves on the Board of Directors of the Philadelphia Trial Lawyers Association and the Board of Governors of the Philadelphia Bar Association. In 2019, Mr. Vanderveen Excuse me, in 2019, the Vanderveen, O'Neill, Hartshorn, and Levin won the Philadelphia VIP Trailblazers Award for their effective pro bono services. Attorney Michael Vanderveen was also named to the Philadelphia Business Journal's 2019 Best of the Bar as a plaintiff's personal injury attorney. Extremely uh, impressive stuff. Good morning, sir. How are you today? I'm good, good morning, Jeff. I'm just fine. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Did- I, I only wanted to say one thing. My term on the Montgomery School Board of Directors uh, has expired, so I'm a past board member. Okay. Thank you. I was just going to ask, right. did I miss anything in your background that you'd like to share? Is, is there anything else that you want to <laughs> add? <laughs> no, no. Thank you. We have a, uh, a uh, law firm in Center City, Philadelphia with offices in Allentown, and uh, we have eight lawyers and, and a group of about 25 legal professionals who are phenomenal at their job. And, and I know I, I deal with some of them on a regular basis, and, and they're they're definitely on top of their game. Can you tell the listeners how and when you first started your law firm and, and how it evolved to where it is today? Sure. Um, well, th- this uh, law firm, Vanderveen, O'Neill, Hartshorn, and Levin, I really started on my own six, uh, almost seven years ago uh, and brought on uh, Fran O'Neill, Brian Hartshorn and Nelson Levin as partners, I'd say probably three years ago now. I, I'd had a law firm uh, for about 18 years before that with another partner, and we uh, 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 split up, and then, um, you know, I'm now, I now have this firm. Uh, started my legal career uh, after law school in Chicago for six years, doing exclusively criminal defense. When I moved to Philadelphia, um, uh, 20, I don't know, five years ago, uh, I, uh, started a criminal, uh, a criminal defense practice, but also, um, added civil litigation, uh, to my repertoire and started doing, uh, and doing quite well personal injury work for, um, uh, individuals who are, are hurt by the negligence, uh, or acts of others. And, um, and, and now then over the last five years, we've really also developed a commercial litigation practice, 
um, where we're representing small businesses uh, uh, in in any contest that they have, either with the government uh, or with other corporations. Hmm. Interesting. What brought you? The, 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 the love of my practice, Jeff, has <laughs> always been criminal defense. I, I grew up doing that, uh, uh, and you know, it, it, it's what gets my uh, creative uh, and professional juices flowing all the time. It's just such such an exciting uh, area to practice law, criminal defense. I think that clearly the best trial lawyers are the ones that practice criminal defense. I- I would I would agree with you, and and I enjoy doing the the investigative side of the criminal defense. So, I'm gonna go go right into um, what I was gonna say uh, or, or lead with in in a few minutes. But I'm gonna jump ahead. Previous shows I've mentioned that there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States, and through this podcast, we try to create an understanding for our listeners that our current judicial system is not necessarily truth and justice for all. And that everyone needs to be aware of this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of several different things, and they include false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. So... It's just or, there's, there's, or, or, or all of the above. <laughs> absolutely. As well. Absolutely. And with that or, being or, said, go ahead. Nope. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. With, your, I, with that I being was just said, gonna, I was just going to say with that, with that being said for our listeners, do you know that there are approximately 2 million people in jail or prison in the United States? And there's no perfect formula that can be applied to how many are innocent, but it's believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. So even on the low end, that equates to 40,000. Or on the high end, it could be as much as 200,000 innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And that doesn't include those that have been wrongfully charged of a crime either. So those numbers are even higher. And and what that means um, for our listeners is that they could sit in jail for a year or two years waiting trial and they may be found innocent uh, or not guilty, but they're still in prison. They're still in jail during that time. So with with that, um, as I mentioned about all the different reasons and that can cause that, I see a lot of that in Pennsylvania, especially in Philadelphia. What has been your experience with that over the years? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was going to say there is certainly a national conversation going on right now. Uh, all across the nation uh, about um, the problems with our criminal justice system. Uh, For all of the, you know, you could do a show, you could do a series of shows on each one of the points you just went through, ineffective assistance to counsel, jailhouse snitches, uh, unreliable evidence, uh, uh, charlequin uh, experts being brought in to opine about, meaning give their opinion about, uh, ballistics or uh, burn patterns or all, all, all kinds of stuff, and even to a certain extent what DNA means. Uh, and uh, many, many convictions will happen uh, based on expert testimony that, that several years and years later is completely debunked mm-hmm. um, and yep. led to a, to led a lot of uh, convictions. But that's a whole national 
uh, conversation, and 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 I'm not sure I feel authoritative enough to discuss it on that level. But I can tell you about Pennsylvania, and even in more particularly about Philadelphia. I think a lot of the things that's going on in uh, Philadelphia is a microcosm of really what needs to happen in the bigger bigger picture. Uh, I'm not sure if your listeners know, but uh, in Philadelphia, we uh, a couple of years ago got a new district attorney. Uh, uh, the gentleman's name is Larry Krasner. He was um, a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer uh, all of his career. Brilliant man. Uh, very, very fine lawyer. And went over uh, and ran for prosecutor, I don't know, maybe three years ago now, um, on a progressive platform, progressive ideas for our criminal justice system from crime to punishment. And uh, what you're seeing is, um, first of all, uh, doing away primarily with all nonviolent and drug offenses, cash bail. So people aren't sitting in there uh, for a year or two before their case is heard, but they're allowed to be out on bail, um, uh, uh, make a living, support their family uh, or those that they need to support, um, uh, contribute to society, and be active and participate in the defense of their own case. Um, One of the biggest problems of being in jail is is you cannot participate in the investigation or the defense of your own case in any real meaningful way. Um, And so uh, what we're seeing in Philadelphia is uh, progressive uh, approaches to things such as no cash bail um, and uh, decriminalization of, you know, minor marijuana possession uh, offenses and that kind of stuff. Certainly, uh, in Philadelphia, they're taking, if you do get to a sentencing, they're really taking a very individual look at each case. It's not one punishment fits all from their perspective. They want to hear about uh, the crime, of course. But they also want to hear about the defendant and what mitigates uh, uh, you know, their conduct if they're found guilty. But there are a lot of people still being found um, uh, guilty who are not. And uh, it may not um, discriminate against uh, race or gender, but it does discriminate against economic status. Yes. There are not very many wealthy guys and gals being convicted of crimes they didn't commit because they can afford the best lawyers and the best investigators and the best defense money can buy. And what those best lawyers use are the same rules of procedure and the same rules of evidence that prosecutors use to get their convictions justified or not uh, uh, with, against lawyers who aren't so competent. Uh, and so there is an economic disparity uh, in the world of wrongful convictions. Um, and that's particularly chilling um, when we start talking about death penalty cases. Absolutely. And and I'm glad you brought that up. I appreciate that. And, and that's so true. And I find that, and I have a few cases now where they, they can't afford an attorney and they're using a public defender. And I appreciate all the work that the public defenders do, but sure. I, I think we, we, we can probably agree their caseloads are just 
they're too high. They, they can't meet with the clients. Overworked, underpaid. It's the classic overworked, right. underpaid for guys and, and, and men and women who are really doing God's work. I mean, to defend the accused um, on a measly pauper salary um, is being done because people believe in the ideals of our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and are particularly our Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment. Uh, and, um, you know, they are real heroes. And in this time of the coronavirus, they are out there with the prosecutors. They are out there um, still doing their job, going into the jails where, where the disease is, uh, where the virus is flourishing. They're going into the courthouses still to do arraignments and, and, uh, and other things. I was in court uh, uh, on an extradition uh, just last Saturday. Uh, a client being extradited from California back to Pennsylvania. And on a, on a Saturday morning two weeks ago, I was uh, doing an arraignment with, you know, 15 people in the courtroom. It was, um, mm-hmm. you know, the folks that are doing this work uh, are doing it because they believe in what they believe in. Uh, but they don't have the resources. They also don't have the uh, usually just the enormous um, wealth of networking and experience uh, that the higher price private defense lawyers have. They don't have all the experts at their disposal that a wealthy defendant can hire. They don't have the investigators uh, at their disposal that a wealthy defendant can hire. Um, and uh, they they often aren't as in tune, you know, uh, uh, in uh, all of uh, the nuances of putting forth the trial itself. Um, you know, it, 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 it's not a cookie-cutter a- approach that any of the top defense lawyers take. Uh, and so um, with wrongful convictions, uh, economic disparity is a big factor. Yep, and, and, and I want to highlight, for those very reasons, this is why the defense must conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. And what's going to happen is... You need you need to be able to identify the facts and righting the wrong during the trial stage as opposed to after the fact. And it's so much more difficult during a post-conviction relief act um, or any kind of appeal afterwards. It's it's even more of an uphill battle. Yeah, and, 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 you know, particularly on the state and county level, the method of investigating and, and prosecuting on the state level. It's far different than it is on the federal level. You know, on the federal level, they'll investigate you for two or three years, wait until the almost the statute of limitations, and then bring charges on you. So your ability to defend the case is much more difficult because a lot of the witnesses they spoke to and the evidence they collected is old and or gone. Um, uh, it's different in the state courts. In, in the state true. courts, um, uh, they hear of or see a crime and make an immediate arrest and barely do any investigation afterward, if any at all. And if what investigation they do do, it is tailored to convict the person they've arrested rather than tailored to uncover all of the relevant and pertinent facts and really get down to the truth of what the case is and what the facts say. Um, so just the way investigations are conducted um, are, are, uh, are biased uh, uh, in and of themselves because they're investigating for the conviction of the person they got rather than investigating for the truth behind the crime. Yep. 
and if that if that makes any sense. Absolutely, and and uh, just two comments as far as the the federal cases go. Absolutely, I was assigned on the Kabani Savage case, and they were investigating that for over ten years. You know, from oh, from start you know, to finish. Oh, my, my my good. That was that was uh, that's amazing. That was one of the longest federal criminal trials in uh, Philadelphia history, I believe. You are uh, correct. I mean, from I, I think from your jury selection through sentencing, it was um, I mean, solid. Was it 13, eleven months, thirteen months, something like that? Yep. Yeah, just I had a very that. good friend uh, on that case as well. He was the death penalty specialist for uh, one of the co-defendants, uh, the, the one I think who had the gas can in the trunk uh, mm-hmm. when he got pulled over. And, um, you know, uh, and the defense that those defendants got, they got some of the best lawyers in the country on that <laughs> savage case. I mean, gosh, you know, Bill Bo, the one I'm, the gentleman I'm talking about, what a phenomenal lawyer. I mean, dedicated the last probably 10 years of his career to exclusively doing mitigation phase of death penalty cases. I mean, boy, you know, uh, talk about being dedicated to, to saving lives. That, that That's really it. And that gentleman was very good, but it was an all-star Philadelphia lineup of lawyers in that case. Uh, and, and so to a certain extent, um, you know, it, it's an outlier of the economic disparity point I was making earlier. <laughs> the court really appointed some phenomenal lawyers there. They did, and, and, and they, some of those, and, and they made a lot of money on that. You probably know more than me. <laughs> yeah, and you probably know more than me. But some of those uh, defendants uh, may have had enough money to uh, uh, buy their own lawyers as well, hire their own lawyers without appointment. I'm not sure. But I know the appointed ones were just really the best that there were. I'm, I'm pretty sure the judge wanted to make sure there were no mistakes. That is true. Yeah, I, I, I do understand that there, there's some appeals that are still pending out there, but we'll see what mm-hmm. happens with that. <laughs> yep. You know, I, I mean, they have to, you know, as far as from the death penalty side of it, Kabani has to. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting case. It was the longest running and the most expensive uh case in the history of the southeastern district of of the united states i believe wow it was it was yeah, millions i mean that, that fact doesn't surprise me but uh, i i remember uh the trial closely actually uh, mr Bo was to have done a homicide trial with me uh and that and that savage trial just kept kept on and on so i ended up uh, ended up Trying that uh, that that murder case myself, fortunate enough to uh, get a not guilty verdict in it. But boy, yeah. um, you know that that savage trial was something. Yeah, it was. It was definitely. It was. I, I was excited to be a part of it. It was. It was an interesting yeah. process for sure, <laughs> and long. Yeah, I was able to go over and watch some of it too. I, I have a, I a question. Over and deliver. Sure, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You can finish. I said, sure, I had to go over and deliver my not guilty verdict to Mr. Bow as he sat in, the, in your federal courtroom over there. <laughs> I, I, I'll add, um, and I don't remember which attorney, which attorney it was who made the, uh, the closing remarks or opening remarks. Uh, I guess probably it was the opening remarks, but I, I thought it was great. They said, one of them uh, mentioned and stated that the 
the, the, the witness, the, the federal witness who was known to have killed, personally killed over 12 people. And he, he looked at the jury and he said he made a deal with the de- or they made a deal, meaning the prosecution made a deal with the devil, which I, I thought was mm-hmm. really hit home. But it was true. I mean, <clears throat> he was he was guilty. He was known to have killed uh, 11 or 12 people. And I forget if it was 11 or 12, but I knew about a 12th or 13th um, that they didn't. And he got 40 years for his deal. And that's federal time, mm-hmm. and that includes time already served. Boy, so he, he got a deal. <laughs> Boy, that's a lot of motive to testify about anything they want you to, huh? Ain't that the truth? Going Absolutely. From Twelve life sentences to forty years—not <laughs> bad. No, and and those forty years, he only has to do eighty-five percent of that time. You know, if he's if he's a good mm-hmm. inmate and whatnot. So, yeah, that was that was crazy. You had mentioned that you you were working on a, a case where somebody was uh, extradited from California, was it? The West Coast? Yeah, I'm still working on the case now, yep. Uh, are you able to uh, say uh, two, two what, weeks ago. What, Wait, what the crime a, was? a horrible circum... What's that? What was the crime? Are you able to mention that? Yeah, um, it, it's they? a uh, internet, cr- internet crimes, but I really can't talk about the specifics of the charges against uh, the, the, the young guy, the Thank goodness there's a presumption of innocence in this country. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you have to force it down people's throats, but uh, their constitution still does allow for that presumption of innocence. Well, I had on one of my clients on a previous show, and she was, and and we can, I don't want to take too much time talking about this because I want to talk to you more, sure. but just real quick, she was extradited from Arizona to York County, Pennsylvania, on a $1,500 bad check that she was a victim of. She was not, she had nothing to do with the crime. She was selling something on an app called Let It Go, and she cashed the check, and it turned out to be a fraudulent mm-hmm. check. And they extradited her, mm-hmm. which, which the extradite, extradition process is really a private transportation company where she was on the road for 11 days in a van, and they stopped. They make all kinds of stops. She spent two nights in a jail somewhere. Other than that, they were driving in the van 24 hours a day. And all for a $1,500 bad check. I can't tell you how many civil rights cases I've had in my career with that exact scenario for very ill people at times uh, uh, since they privatized punishment for profit. In this country, mm-hmm. see what happened to your client was only uh, a matter of dollars and cents. The uh, state, all the states now, have contracted with private companies, profit companies, for uh, the handling of our uh, defendants and incarcerated folks. And so, when they have to extradite somebody from California or New Mexico or Arizona over to, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, North Carolina, North Carolina, wherever. They do that with, in, with one thing in mind, their profit. The mm-hmm. safety and comfort of the person they're transporting uh, is, is not considered. They, first of all, presume everybody guilty, not innocent, typically, and um, they, 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 they transport them with the highest profit margin 
in mind. So what they do is they'll pick her up in Arizona, but they got pickups along the way that they got to go. Right. And it doesn't cost any money to have that person sit in that van uh, uh, and drinking water and eating uh, uh, cheese sandwiches uh, for a few extra days because they continue to make profit as they pick up and drop off. So Absolutely. if she's not in the uh, right queue, I, I, had, I had a client uh, very similar to yours who uh, had uh, full-blown AIDS and was wow. being taken for, geez, I think it was also a bad check. And he literally went from uh, from uh, California to Ohio, back to Chicago, uh, uh, over to Detroit, down to Atlanta, uh, uh, and before he got to Philadelphia. Without yep. his medications, nearly huh. died. Um, and I brought a civil rights uh, suit uh, for him uh, against the governmental entities uh, and those private companies that they that they hired. Um, wow. And we had a, a wonderful recovery for uh, his family. Unfortunately, he didn't he didn't survive to the end of the litigation. Um, his his uh, AIDS was exasperated uh, uh, exasperated by the by the trip itself, and then of course it's it's natural course. Um, but uh, happens all the time because they privatized our criminal justice system for mm-hmm. profit, right? For companies, company owners, and their shareholders, and it's a perversion of really what our criminal justice is supposed to be about with uh, with 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 rehabilitation uh, and reentry into society in a positive and meaningful way is really what our goal should be with keeping and treating folks with decency and respect so that they can pick themselves up and move forward. If, if punishment does have to be exacted upon them. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a real problem. I'm glad you mentioned the case. Oh, thank you. And, and I appreciate your, your, what you mentioned, because it's so true. And in the United States, we incarcerate more people than any other domesticated country in the world. And our sentences are longer than any other domesticated country in the world. And then we, we treat them like dirt. You know, I mean, there, we don't, very few do we really, in my opinion, rehabilitate. I mean, there are programs and there's some good programs and some um, inmates or those who are incarcerated take advantage of, of the system, but more than likely they're learning how to, to, to commit more crimes and, and different crimes. That's most of the schooling that they get in there because they're treated like crap. Yeah. This, yeah. this, this young woman, she was in her early thirties with, with two children who had to leave in the middle of the school year and go live with their father in Texas. So their lives were uprooted for an entire school year living with, with their father, which isn't a bad thing that they're living with their father. It's good that he's still yeah. in the picture, but you know, they had to leave in the middle of the school year and she was in jail for uh, almost two and a half months after that. And then at her um, bail hearing, they wanted to, uh, we were trying to get an ROR and the, the prosecutors were saying she was a flight risk. She's never had a criminal record, a criminal charge against her in her life. <laughs> She's a, a single mom trying to raise a family, you know. It, it's terrible. In, in, in the words of my mother-in-law, 
know if you heard that. But <laughs> yep. <laughs> he does this shame on shame on them clicking sound with her right <laughs> with her tongue. It's just horrible. Shame on them, really. That's true. So I, I am I'm a, obviously a, a proud supporter of all the, the men and women in uniform and from our military to the police who protect us on a daily basis. And I'm thankful for their services. And it's, you know, like any other profession that there are some bad apples. And we find this in all walks of life and all professions. Do you, do you think there's anything further that can be done to prevent and deter future misconduct, not only by law enforcement, but also by the district attorneys and judges and others in the judicial system? It leads, it, it, it leads from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, what really, what needs to be done is the people at the top, whether in the district attorney's office or in the police department, um, have to lead as to what they expect. They have to um, lead and provide with appropriate training. Um, you know, our, our police officers are very dedicated people. Um, but if you don't train them properly, it doesn't, and, 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 and they, you know, misstep, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means they weren't trained properly. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, what can be done is having people at the top who are, uh, progressive and thoughtful in their approach to criminal justice, and then providing the appropriate um, training and support to police personnel uh, to to carry out, you know, this more uh, progressive uh, approach at uh, dealing with uh, witnesses, suspects, uh, or defendants. True, very true, yeah. and, and I mean, I mean, you know, that's really where it is. And in Philadelphia, and and, and thank goodness, and thank goodness we have our courts, because at the end of the day, um, if you do have police or prosecutorial misconduct, uh, you do have the courts to go to uh, to uh, try to get redress and right the wrongs. Um, Not an easy road to take, uh, and it shouldn't be. Uh, But uh, I guess a lot of people would cry foul when it wasn't if they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the, 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 our civil, when your civil rights are, are, uh, uh offended, uh, you get to bring, bring, uh, court action for that. That, that's and, true. You know, and-, and that, that court action can change policy and procedures for training police personnel, sometimes more than anything else. The specter of a large verdict for misconduct uh, moves the people who make decisions uh, to look at and uh, adjust their approach to things so that it doesn't happen again. Right. It's just unfortunate that sometimes it takes a really hideous incident for that to occur. Yeah. And and then... And then there's, you know, the the prosecution, um, the district attorneys, and again, there's there's some bad apples, you know, here and there and throughout the world. But you have the district attorneys who maybe violate something, uh, don't supply the information or the evidence. Now, if that was you or I that that withheld that information, 
you can be brought up on on um, disciplinary charges. You can lose your license. You can go in front of, you know, the uh, disciplinary board. Uh, and same with me, where you know I'd lose my PI license, and that could be the end of my business. They have prosecute. Mm-hmm. They have immunity. And for example, a Brady violation. Mm-hmm. How do we fix that? <laughs> it's a well. It's interesting. Um, it's really interesting because prosecutorial prosecutorial misconduct, um, when it exists, is often very subtle. Not including this page of discovery, not putting in that page, uh, not uh, deeming this witness uh, reliable and uh, not giving their statement or information. Uh, and it's so and it's it, and it's little things that can lead to wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but possibly um, uh, and and they kind of have immunity for that 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 that's right. I mean, they're kind of given the benefit of the doubt. And, um, you know, one, one forty nine that didn't get, uh, you know, a police report that didn't get in, uh, you know, maybe nobody's going to get you in trouble for that, but our code of ethics, uh, and our laws, um, do not give immunity to prosecutors who intentionally, um, uh, uh, violate the rules. No lawyer, prosecutor, uh, or defense lawyer, or even a judge with a law degree um, uh, is allowed to violate our rule of ethics. And if they do, they, they can lose their license and never be in a courtroom again if they do. Um, judges, you know, to keep it accurate here, judges have their own judicial code of conduct um, by which they are uh, also held while they sit on the bench. But uh, not on the bench, judges are also, if they're lawyers, uh, which almost all are now, um, uh, they're, they're, they're also subject to our, uh, their law licenses, uh, uh, ethics board. And um, that has weight. It really does. Uh, people are, um, do not want to go in front of a disciplinary board, uh, and um, they do not want to lose their law licenses. There's no way for them to make a living after that. Sure. It's just easier for those charges to be brought up against them if they're on the private side versus the working for for the DA's office in most cases. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. There's uh, two cases that I believe you were involved in or your firm that maybe we can talk about a little bit. Um, one was the National AIDS Brigade case and the necessity sure. defense called the Needle Exchange, which was in Chicago, which, by the way, Chicago, I don't know if you're following the news and you know, you're still keeping in touch with anyone in Chicago, but they are going through a lot of what's going on in Philadelphia and, and especially with Jeffrey Walker and, you know, um, a lot of yeah. things that he's sharing. But Chicago's reviewing hundreds of cases as well because of. Um, police corruption and, and whatnot. But anyway, um, in reference to the AIDS Brigade yeah. case. I, I will tell you, first of all, that Chicago is one of the most thrilling places to practice criminal defense. Everything happens uh, uh, at a place called 26th in California. That's the address of the Cook County Courthouse there. 
it does have five districts around Chicago. Um, uh, Skokie, Markham, she's all five of them now. You're probably not going to get, it's been uh, 25 years, but, um, it, it, it's just an exciting place to practice law. It, big old grand courtrooms and the jails attached to the courthouse. And, um, there is a lot of history, uh, in, in, in Chicago when it comes to tr- criminal defense. I mean, well, well before, um, you know, the, the prohibition and mob wars way back, I mean, as far back as Chicago goes. Um, but, uh, and, and so for me, it was very exciting to start my first six years. You're asking me about a case. Um, I represented a, a guy, very interesting case. Uh, I re- represented a guy named John Stewart Parker. And uh, I had met him. He, uh, he contacted me as a young, I'm a young lawyer in Chicago. And I, he contacted the firm that I worked for uh, and was looking for pro bono free defense um, for a charge of possession of hypodermic needles that uh, he was facing in Chicago. Uh, and the backstory is that Mr. Parker had set up, come to Chicago to set up a needle exchange program. And oh, this is 25 years or more ago now. I mean, this is cutting edge stuff um, to set up a needle exchange program in Chicago uh, to stop the, uh, because he believed that the, the drug addicts were getting um, uh, the trans, transmission of AIDS through sharing of dirty hypodermic needles in Illinois. It was a misdemeanor to possess a hypodermic needle as it was in 11 other states at the time. And so he wanted to change the law, challenge the law, and hopefully change it in Illinois. Um, the reason why John Stewart Parker was doing all of this, because he's a young guy. He was a um, uh, guy from Southie. South Boston, and boxed. He was a boxer, uh, but had landed into the to the drugs and, and the needle drugs. And uh, luckily, through a lot of his own uh, fortitude and and uh, self control, uh, stopped, uh, got clean, uh, and was a very intelligent man, and found his way to the Yale School of Public Health. Hmm. What Mr. Parker had noticed was in Southie, all of his buddies were dying of AIDS, and they weren't gay, but they were heroin addicts. And he kind of figured out, he's one of the first to figure out that AIDS was getting spread through that dirty needle. Wow. And he educated himself at Yale. And um, got out and started something called the National AIDS Brigade and went around uh, the country challenging, uh, educating people and challenging the laws where it was illegal. So he called me up and said, look, I've got these charges. I don't have any money, but I got a cause. (laughs) And, uh, And can you help me? I was a really, really young lawyer at the time. Um, and the firm that I was with was probably the best in the Midwest for criminal defense um, uh, and was very busy and didn't have much interest for something that didn't know much about. But I was interested. I was really taken in by this this, this guy and his story and his history and, and what he was trying to accomplish. So we undertook the case, and we used a very rare defense called the necessity defense. Basically, our defense was, yeah, he's holding the needle. And he's even given those needles out. 
but he's preventing a greater harm. He's saving lives. And out of necessity to save a life, he's possessing and passing these needles. Tried the case in front of a great judge named A.C. Cunningham. And, uh, and uh, A.C. did that trial. Uh, he was found not guilty. Uh, that uh, got a lot of media attention, but it did not um, move the Illinois state legislature much. So John came back a year later, and we had the second round of uh, what they called Chicago Needle Trials. Uh, this time he had a co-defendant with him named um, uh, Andrew Hoffman, who was Abby Hoffman's son. And uh, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the connection of Abby Hoffman in the Chicago mm-hmm. 7 to the yep. city of Chicago. Um, and uh, so we had another round of trials. But in the first needle trial, uh, and, and, and were, again, successful, we were eventually able to write, uh, I helped uh, in a minor way, um, author legislation to decriminalize uh, possession of hypodermic needles in Illinois. It's a very, very large law firm named Skadden Arts. I think they're the biggest in the country at the time. And there were some good young lawyers there at the time that were really doing that legislative work. Um, and uh, but we're able to use, you know, my, my, my trials, my evidence, my results to, you know, go into committees and, and get the legislation passed. But uh, I, I had... Uh, as my expert witness in that case, C. Everett Coop. And the name's familiar to you. It may not be familiar to some of the younger uh, listeners that you have, but C. C. Everett Coop was the Surgeon General for a pretty long time uh, and uh, really waged war on smoking and some other things. Um, but as uh, as the sur- Surgeon General, when, I, when he was for me, uh, an expert witness for me, he was out of the CDC, the Center for Disease, wow. Disease Controls, which is, you know, what, what, what's kind of running our um, pandemic uh, attack uh, defense right now. Yep. Um, and he came into Chicago and uh, stayed with me in a tiny little apartment that I had at the time because I was a young lawyer with no money and, you know, big tuition bills. And, uh, and, uh, he, 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 we were on our, uh, we, you know, we drove him my little MG to court and back, and and uh, and uh, you, you know, to know the man, it's it's uh, something to see him a little convertible, and uh, and we got to the courthouse and you know, going and break here, break there, and he came up to me and he said, "Hey, Mike, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're a junkie too." So what do you what do you mean, Doc? I never never taken a drug in my life. You know. You're an adrenaline junkie, <laughs> <laughs> because the the thrill because I I thrive on the thrill of the trial, that tempo with adrenaline. When you're on trial, adrenaline's just pumping into you for the entire day, like ten, twelve hours of just adrenaline pumping the whole time, and and uh, that that that's its own high, that that adrenaline high. Um, and he was right. I mean, you know, he diagnosed me inaccurately. So, um, because the, the, the trial itself, uh, the energy level, the need for extreme concentration to, to be able to have and utilize that, um, three dimensional court sense that you need to have around you to know what the people on your side and front and behind you are all doing and saying at the same time. It's just, it's just such a rush uh, that 
uh, uh, Dr. Coop was right. Uh, I am certainly an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> but I'm very, very proud of that work. You know, I've won murder trials. I've won, you know, any kind of trial, any kind of crime just about there is. I've got multi-million dollar jury verdicts in state and federal courts. Uh, you know, um, I've, I've, I've had some good results. And probably um, the thing I'm most proud about is uh, representing John Stewart Parker uh, in those Neal trials and helping uh, in a small way to stop the, the spread of AIDS. Um, really, really, really important work. It was uh so worthwhile for me. And I ended up using it as, you know, as a guidepost to the way I wanted my career to be. I've involved myself um, uh, for free or for, <laughs> or for a really good fee in, um, in causes that are important, that are important to um, not just individuals, but important to communities and societies at whole, um, uh, such as the Chicago Needle Trials. I find I'm, that. I'm glad you asked me about that. I, 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 I just, uh, I could, I could, uh, I could just keep talking about it forever. It was such a wonderful, meaningful, worthwhile representation of just really a phenomenal, phenomenal guy with a with a with a great idealistic spirit. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I, I have chills listening to you talk about that, and I think it's fabulous. And back in the eighties. Um, AIDS was was taboo, you know, and it, it was it was a, a new disease at the time. People um, labeled it, you know, more with the homosexual community, and mm-hmm. you know, back in the eighties, that wasn't that wasn't okay in society, you know, for the most part. Oh. And for for people who it didn't affect, um, you know, where AIDS didn't affect them. Or know of any anyone, you know, it was it was a bad thing. It was a dirty thing. I had a cousin at the time. She was older uh, than I was, but she had gotten AIDS um, from drugs, and and it, it she didn't get it until she had already cleaned herself up. Um, she, you know, she did her time in jail. <coughs> excuse me, and um, went to rehab and so forth and, and uh, had a baby. And then the, uh, the AIDS came out, the HIV. So I was, I was probably a little more familiar with it, especially from, from, um, from the, the drug use. Uh, and I, like you, never tried it, never did any, any drugs. Um, just that's not my thing. But Again, I lost a cousin because of it, and um, people didn't really need to know. And so, I think what you did back then is just that's that's touching. That's that's a that's a big deal. That's that's impressive. And thank you. I appreciate it. I, I know. Yeah, it was you know, as a young lawyer, you know, um, it, it's the case that got me out onto the streets, got me into the shooting houses, got me to understand that to do my job. On every case, I got to be there. I've got to be at the scene of the crime. I've got to be there when my investigator does the interview. I've got to sift through all the evidence myself. I need boots on the ground to defend in, uh, the case properly. Um, and it's not sitting in your desk behind a chair. Um, a lot of civil work is, but the criminal defense is very much out on the streets with the people doing the work, getting the vibe, understanding the community, neighborhood, or culture 
in which everything took place to get the right perspective on how you're going to present your defense. Absolutely. And, and in that that's case, a, that taught me that. That's a great I was, tip for I all. I was doing a vehicle. I was doing this. this is right. <laughs> I was doing it probably about 10, 15 years ago, a vehicular homicide case in uh, Philadelphia. And it was a dr- two, two uh, youngsters were accused of drag racing south down on the boulevard. And they were up by those malls up there, the top. And um, uh, they, they initially got the vehicle homicide uh, for my client tossed in the preliminary hearing on the case because the witness was the, the, the eyewitness that they had, the, 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 they stopped at every red light. And, you know, if you go, if you ride the boulevard ever, it doesn't matter how fast you're speeding, everybody's going to end up at the same red light. You know, you, it's just, right. you can't beat them. <laughs> yep. And so, uh, you know, so the intent to really be drag racing isn't, you know, when you're stopping at every, every red light, it's a little bit tough, but, um, it had happened at a particular intersection on the boulevard up north, just above Grant, where it didn't have a, a crosswalk, but it was a place where people were crossing. And there was a, uh, it was right where the Bell Telephone Company was. And I needed to get, I really wanted to get um, a, uh, a perspective of the entire intersection. And there were certainly no drones yet, but there wasn't even like Google Maps yet or anything like that. You couldn't get a satellite aerial view of, the, of everything the way you can today. Um, so I climbed <laughs> with my investigator. He boosted me up. I climbed a big old apple tree <laughs> next to the, the Bell Telephone building, climbed off the limbs onto the roof, and was taking photos all around. And wow. got great photos of the intersection up and down the lanes of the boulevard so that when I needed to present the defense to the, to the judge or the jury, they were going to be able to see it in a way that back then people weren't presenting evidence. Hmm. But it's going that extra mile, climbing that extra tree, hopping on that other roof is really uh, what criminal defendants deserve in their defense. It's, it's our obligation. It's our ethical obligation to be zealous in the defense. And, and, and that's not just zealous in your thought, but it's zealous in your actions. And that's really, that kind of work is what's going to prevent, hopefully, and I just knocked on wood, um, prevent your wrongful convictions. Uh, I, I think what you just said is is a great tip for our listeners, and that's the difference between a good attorney and a bad attorney, because the, there's a lot of them that I end up doing PCRA work for, where their attorney met with them maybe once before the trial when they were, you know, in in the uh, in the holding cell. And they didn't do any anything yeah. else. They didn't meet with them. They didn't discuss anything. They didn't get an investigator to go talk to witnesses. Nobody looked at the crime scene. So the the differences, and, and it, not only are they little differences, they're drastic differences too. You know, it's it's a small little thing, which is a big thing. You know, driving up or, or climbing the tree and getting those pictures. But that's that's what makes or break your breaks your case. So that, that's yep. That's a tip, everybody. Absolutely do your homework. Right. <laughs> Make sure you have somebody who's willing to roll up their sleeves and, and do what needs to be done. And, you know, not in a criminal case, not necessarily just sit behind the desk and just, just hope something's going to appear because you, you're probably not going to find it that way. So no, you've got you've to go out and find the evidence. It's absolutely. there. Yep. 
Definitely. So we, this, this past 50 minutes already flew by so fast. I skipped all the commercials and, and breaks um, because we were, oh gosh. we were, um, you know, just having a really good conversation. So we only have about three or four minutes left before we close. And I still have a ton of things I'd like to talk about. So may have to have you back another day. Um, oh, but, I love it. It'd be good. This has been nice. It really has. Um, give information. Let, let me let me ask you this, and and the reply is only I got to limit it to about two minutes. <laughs> but I listened to mm-hmm. a previous interview of you, and and wanted to point out we were both raised by single mothers. Our first job was delivering yep. newspapers, and then lawn care. So we had a similar youth upbringing. <laughs> Do you believe Did you that? Wash dishes after that? <laughs> I, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've been doing my own laundry since I was I don't know how old, and um, and to this day I still prefer to do my own laundry. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, no. I, believe- I, I, after I after I gave up the lawn care, I went to uh, become a dishwasher in the restaurant business. Okay, so, I did not. You know, I did not do my- that. <laughs> Worked my way up from busboy to waiter. <laughs> <laughs> do Do you believe that's what the the first um, set that first set the foundation for your work ethics today? Yeah, of course, of course. And and uh, it uh, you know I come from a background where um, if uh, if you don't work, you're not going to have food on the table. Literally, you won't have food on your table, and so. At a very early age, being you know uh, uh, raised for a time by a single mom, um, uh, you uh, you get put to work and you you help out uh, not only in the in the home but you help out by bringing in money. I think I was my paper route was probably at about eight or nine years old. My brother, being uh, eighteen months older than me, you know, was the was the big brother taking me around, uh, but. Uh, he wasn't 12 when he started, uh, hmm. and we did that for a couple of years when we were big enough to push mowers, and, you know, we pushed mowers in the neighborhood, and, 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 and not really our neighborhood, because our neighborhood didn't have lawns, but, you know, I was in a, something called the Rearview Apartments in, uh, in Norwich, in Connecticut River, and, uh, but uh, we would go to neighborhoods and mow lawns, and, you know, then it became quite obvious to me that... Uh, um, hard work is, is, is what, what, what is going to make your life because it's not just what you get from hard work, you know, as far as money, but it's what people think of you yep. when you work hard and other people see you work hard, they want to help you. They want to open doors for you. They want to be with you. They want to learn from you. They want to show you to other people as an example of how to be. You influence other people with your hard work in a way that brings you and society a benefit that is almost immeasurable. But it's hard work and, and, and it's what every generation has to have in it to, to survive. Hard workers. Gosh, I, you know, we, we don't have, we don't, I, I want to say one thing. I don't know if we have the time, but we don't have face masks yet you know we don't right. really have good gloves yet we don't even have any testing yet my question is where is rosie the riveter <laughs> you know when we were in a world war and our <laughs> navy and air force got 
predominantly wiped out. We rebuilt an entire Navy and Air Force overnight with people like Rosie the Riveter. And I'm just wondering why the heck our government isn't getting Rosie working now, frankly. I totally agree, and I'd love to talk more, but I know I'm, I'm getting the uh, we got we to gotta close, so I really appreciate you being with me. Thank you um, for our listeners. This is a top-notch law firm, Vanderveen, O'Neill, Hartstorn, and Levin. It's a great firm to work with. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen as we continue to increase our listener base. We appreciate your positive reviews. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week.